Hello and welcome back to this brand new season of Building Local Power. I'm your co-host, Reggie Rucker, and on this season, we're tackling the issue of mergers in industries from internet service providers to electric companies, waste management, banks, grocery stores, and more that all have a direct effect on your individual ability to thrive in life and also your community's strength and vibrancy. On this season that we're calling How to Get Away with Merger, we'll talk to specialists in these industries to unpack how are these companies able to avoid deeper scrutiny and get past regulatory agencies despite the harms these mergers pose to their respective industries and ultimately the harm to communities and customers. And we'll also continue to share the stories from folks on the front line who are perhaps the most affected by these mergers. It's going to be a great season. First up, we're going to have some fun and talk beer. And to get into it, let me toss it over to my co-host, Luke Gannon, who makes every hour a happy one. What's up, Luke? Thank you, Reggie. We have a great lineup of mergers this season. Today, we are talking about one of the largest beer mergers in history, when AB InBev bought SAB Miller for over $100 billion. Leading up to this merger and for the years after, the beer industry has experienced wave after wave of consolidation. Let's jump into the show. Ron Knox is the senior researcher and writer for the independent business team at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. He loves drinking beer, and I know this because he had an anti-monopoly happy hour, and every time we've been at a team retreat together, he's asked me what the best local beer is. And he has also written extensively about concentration in the beer industry. We're so happy to have you here today on the show, Ron. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Luke. Nice to be here. All right. So, Ron, can you tell us about the beer industry? Who are the big players and how much of the market do they control? Since the 1990s or so, the two big brewers in the U.S., uh, and that's Budweiser. They're called AB InBev. That's like the corporate name. But everyone knows them as Budweiser. And Molson Coors, this other conglomerate that used to be called Miller Coors, um, they collectively dominate the beer industry. Uh, at one point, they sold two out of every three beers in America. And if you combine them with a company called Constellation Brands, which imports all the big, you know, Mexican beers like Modelo and so on, you're getting close to three quarters of the entire beer market that is consumed by just three companies. Wow. So I know it didn't used to be this way, right? Um, before alcohol was banned by the 18th Amendment, you know, prohibition, uh, beer was mainly this local regional product, right? There were more than 4,000 breweries in the U.S. in the late 1800s um, in every corner of the country, right? And local breweries dated back all the way to, you know, colonial times, and they produced every kind of beer you can imagine, including super weird stuff that doesn't really exist today, like molasses beer and beer brewed with like fermented pea shoots and so on. Weird, wild stuff, right? Uh, and then after Prohibition ended, there were many hundreds of breweries across America, mainly making beers for a local audience, right? Transportation wasn't great. Refrigeration wasn't, um, wasn't you know, everywhere. So beer was like a local concern. But then by mid-century, things started to change, mainly through these kind of waves of consolidation that created and cemented the big beer oligopoly that we see today. And that change was like remarkable. It was transformative to the industry. 
So we go from 4,000 breweries in the late 1800s all the way to like a still kind of healthy 800 or so um, in the post-prohibition years um, to just 89 breweries that were operated by 40 companies in the late 1970s. And by then, you know, Budweiser was fully the king of beers and Miller Lite alternately tasted great and was less filling. And basically the banality and uniformity of American beer really took hold. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the antitrust agencies did at some point try to step in in the 1950s and the 1960s. And they tried to stop all of the mergers that were happening in the industry, the consolidation they were a little bit late to the party, right? The industry had already kind of taken shape by then, but they did stop some beer mergers uh, with the help of the Supreme Court, including one very famous case involving Pabst Blue Ribbon. But again, by the 90s and the 2000s, the antitrust agencies clearly stopped believing uh, in blocking mergers and the big beer companies saw that they had the green light to get even bigger. Okay. So that's a great summary of, of how we get to sort of more modern day in the beer industry. I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit for our listeners. We were preparing for this episode with Ron and we kept asking sort of like, what's the one merger that we could really anchor this episode with? And Ron kept coming back with, I can't really do this topic justice if we talk about one merger. It's a, it's a series of mergers. So we're going to let you dive into that. But first, Ron, going to have you take us back to that sort of that first big one. Um, what was that that first big merger in the beer industry that really set the stage for what we see today? You know, talk about the merger and what precipitated it. Uh, what were the factors in the market that made these companies really believe that sort of merging was their best or only way forward? I think of one merger in particular as like the first domino to fall that then led to like this whole chain of mergers and takeovers in the industry. So again, I mean, the scene setting, right? 1970s, we saw like the decline of these big regional brands like Pabst and Schlitz. And then eventually you had this three-way monopoly, right? Between Budweiser and Miller and Coors. And they, at some point, they controlled like 80 plus percent of, of, of the industry. And the rest of that fragment that was left over was mainly imports and a handful of craft beers that had started to emerge on the national scene. And we will, uh, of course, talk more about those a little later. So to set up this big merger, the first domino that fell, by like the mid-2000s, the big three that I just mentioned had all been bought by foreign companies, right? Anheuser-Busch got bought by InBev, which was this like Belgian-Brazilian conglomerate. Miller was bought by South African breweries, and Coors was bought by the Canadian brewer Molson. And it was still just the big three. You had all these takeovers, but that didn't really change the makeup of the market. The thing that really changed the makeup of the market was a deal that happened in 2007. It was the first really monumental merger to hit the headlines. Miller wanted to strike a deal with Coors and a move that consolidated or would consolidate the industry from the big three to the big two, like a true beer duopoly. And what those companies said at the time this deal was floated was that it was all about efficiencies, right? The company said that by striking the deal, they would cut down on their shipping costs. They could consolidate manufacturing. They could brew each other's beers in the other one's plants and so on. 
And all of these efficiencies, quote unquote efficiencies, um, would allow the companies to better compete with Budweiser that at the time controlled about half of the entire industry. And they said, look, if Bud has half, we want the other half, and then we can really compete, right, in this kind of duopoly market. It was this classic, you know, bigness begets bigness argument. And ultimately, the company said that it would lead to lower prices. Imagine that regulators at the time weren't having this, oh, yeah, you take 50, I take 50. Like, What was their response to, to that argument about uh, whether these companies should be allowed to merge or not? Yeah, the regulators said that sounded like a good deal to them. Um, yeah, uh, so the Justice Department, okay. the Justice Department reviewed the deal, and um, they said that they believed the arguments of Miller and Coors, and what their um, analysis showed was that Miller and Coors didn't really compete with one another; that they actually both just competed with Budweiser, um, which to 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 me, a beer drinker, um, feels like a bizarre conclusion to reach as if right. as if drinkers never decide between like a Miller Lite and a Coors Light when they're at the bar or the store. They're always just picking between one of those two and then Bud Light. I don't think that's how it works, but that's just my um, intuition. But that's what they said. And so that's what the government said. And so they thought that the deal would have no impact on prices no impact on like the greater competitive landscape of beer. So they cleared the deal unconditionally. Um, and the whole investigation took like eight months, which is nothing um, in, in the grand scheme of regulatory approval. And so by 2008, Molson Coors and SAB Miller operated as if they were one company. Wow. Yeah, that is really quick as I'm starting to learn about the regulatory process. Eight months is nothing. Um, yeah. So in 2007, these two conglomerates merge. So now they have about, if I'm understanding, half the market, and Budweiser has about another half the market, approximately. What happens after this? In this 15 years now, 15 plus from 2007 to present day, what's going on? Is there another series of mergers? What are these companies now just dominating the industry? Yeah, so that deal did seem to trigger this kind of new wave of consolidation uh, in beer. So the first thing that happened um, is that AB InBev went on this buying spree, right? And and I, this is largely, I think, a reaction to their competitors being allowed to get together, or to to you know its competitor, um, its two competitors being allowed to get together and consolidate their their businesses. So a few years after that, Budweiser bought Modelo, the biggest brewer in Mexico, and the maker of some of the most popular Mexican imports into the U.S., including Modelo and Corona Pacifico and others. Um, in that deal, uh, Constellation Brands got the rights to the Mexican imports. That was uh, a deal brokered by the Justice Department. Now, during uh, in the in the Obama administration, it was quite a different response from the kind of nonchalant, uh, you know, clearance of the merger between Miller and Coors. Um, but all it really did was preserve the status quo in the industry, and that was kind of the 
Um, that was kind of the line that the Obama administration Justice Department took. You can do these deals as long as nothing changes. That doesn't mean it's more competitive or that, that it's not a monopoly situation. It's just not necessarily getting any worse. So you had the Modelo deal. And then... Breaking news, a mega beer merger is announced. Bud announced that they were going to buy uh, S.A.B. Miller for $100 billion, which still today sounds like a lot of money. You know, like a decade later, it's a lot of money. And, uh, and the deal would create not just the largest brewer in America, but the largest brewer worldwide. Wow. It's seen you so right. So you hear about that and you go, holy. So this is it's re- it's a remarkable thing. Right. And no other no other industry that I can think of has the second largest company been allowed to buy the third largest company and then the largest company be allowed to buy the number two company. So the Justice Department looks at it and they did okay, Good, not great result. Right. They allowed the mega merger to happen. They allowed the deal to close, but they essentially forced the companies to keep the status quo intact again and spin off Miller Coors into its own standalone business, which is now known as Molson Coors. So, Ron, I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around this. You know, it seems like the monopoly problem in beer is as present now as it has ever been. Yet when I, you know, search breweries in Minneapolis, there are a number that come up and I've gone to a few, you know, quite a few here and it seems like the case in every town. So how, how, how do you sort of level this, that there is a massive amount of concentration yet, you know, I can go to breweries all over the country? Right, right. It's a great question. And it's, and it's the question that I think befuddles um, a lot of, a lot of, uh, observers of the industry and a lot of regulators as well. Um, So it's where the story gets interesting. Yes, you're definitely right. I mean, there are once again, thousands of breweries in America, more, if you count, you know, brew pubs and so on, there are more breweries than there have ever been. Um, And that's amazing news, but sadly it hasn't meant the end of big beer. Instead, what big beer said was, if you can't beat them, you gotta buy them. So in the 2000s and into the 2010s, the rise of craft beer really did put a dent in the market share of AB and Molson Coors, right? Their market share dropped from around 70 or 75% of the market to around 60, 65% of the market. That's a significant shift. And a lot of that shift went towards the craft brewers. Suddenly, the bigger established regional craft brands like you know, Goose Island in Chicago, um, Anchor Steam in California, New Belgium in Colorado, and so on. They were expanding. They were reaching into other markets around the country. And then this whole new generation of regional and local craft beer brands were rising uh, up behind them and getting established in, in their own places all around the country. So by the late 2000s, Bud had taken notice, right? Budweiser said, we can't. We- we're literally losing market share in a way that Bud hadn't in a half a century or more, right? Um, so Bud said, okay, we have to get involved here. So in the early 2010s, 2011, 2012, um, Bud made a play for Goose Island. And this was an earth-shattering acquisition for the craft beer community. This little 
segment of the beer world where um, independence was treasured, localism was treasured, right? These were the, the kind of fabric that made up um, the craft beer world. And suddenly Budweiser steps in and says, no, you're, you're coming with us now. So Bud buys Goose Island in, in 2012 and shakes up the entire industry. And then there was a, uh, a cascading series of acquisitions, both by Bud and by uh, what was then known as Miller Coors, now known as Molson Coors. So the Budweiser craft beer, quote unquote, craft beer portfolio grew from just Goose Island in 2012 to uh, more than 20 beers a decade later. It changed the entire landscape of the beer industry. You're getting at sort of the the flip side of my last question, which is, you know, when I go into a liquor store and I see all of these different brands, it's actually sort of this illusion of choice. It's actually a lot of those brands are owned by the same company. Can you talk about this? Actually, hold on. Ron, actually, before you get into that, your response to that, I just want to note that it sounds like Luke is spending a lot of time at breweries and liquor stores. <laughs> and sure. I just, I mean, having a good time, clearly. But so, just, just go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> they're some of the greatest places on earth. There so, yeah, you know, I can't blame it, really. Um, so it's funny. I, I, <laughs> I was thinking about this um, the other day. I saw, I saw a post on like Instagram um, from the Teamsters. Um, and the Teamsters were asking folks uh, to boycott Molson Coors products because they were in a contract dispute with um, with with uh, one of the breweries, right? And so um, and so these posts were telling people what brands to avoid, right? Like, don't buy these brands. And the list was literally like five entire Instagram slides long, like. It, Every Molson beer variety, Coors, Miller, right? The obvious ones. Then, you know, Blue Moon, Atwater Brewery, Foster's, Hams, Keystone, Terrapin, like literally on and on. Like it's, it felt endless. Like if you, like if you really wanted to boycott Miller, you had to show up to the liquor store with like a list in hand because you wouldn't really know which ones were owned by Miller and which weren't, right? And then with AB, you know, InBev, the list is just as long, if not longer. Um, obviously, Bud, Bud Light, Michelob, Bush, we know those. But then between InBev's international beers, it's 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 imports, and then the craft acquisitions, the list for AB InBev includes Stella Artois, Hogarden, Kona, Shock Topped, Goose Island, um, Elysian, Golden Road, Breckenridge, on and on. So what? You know, it's like I said, the problem with the big brewers, massive portfolio of beers, including the imports and the craft beers, is that for the beer distributors and the retailers those distributors sell to, the big brewers can now push their brands without asking most beer drinkers and most bars to sacrifice the types of beer that they and their customers like to drink, right? So if you're a bar today, your customers are going to want you and expect you to have a few, you know, different kinds of things on tap, right? You need the big domestic brands, but then you also probably need like an IPA. You probably need like a stout, 
Um, you need a couple imports mixed in there that people want, uh, and so on. With Bud and Miller owning all of these different brands, including imports and craft, it drastically reduces the need for distributors to carry a bunch of other independent beers, right? It doesn't fully um, eliminate the need to carry those other things because most bars are going to carry like the one or two really big local brewers. They're going to have a couple taps for those that's it's in those communities. Um, in Kansas City, that's Boulevard and maybe a couple others. Um, and then maybe you get like a Sam Adams, right? Or you get like a Lagunitas. Um, but that's pretty much it. Um, I love examples. And I always think of, I go to a local bar here in my neighborhood. It's called Frickin' Frack, if you're ever in Kansas City. You should go there. They have good burgers. And they have $1.50 tacos on Saturdays. That's pretty cool. Um, and they have maybe eight or ten taps. And those taps, I pay attention to these things. The taps are Bud and Bud Light, the things you'd expect. A couple from Boulevard. But then the rest of the taps look like craft, but they're actually um, beers brewed by Golden Road and mm. Ten Barrels, both of which are owned by Budweiser. It's this illusion of choice for the customer. Um, that they can get an IPA if they want one, right? Or something similar. But the majority of those traps are con those taps are controlled by Bud and its distributor. Okay, so Ron, before we move into you, you know, you kind of hinted at the challenges that these independent brewers are facing now. Do want to go back to sort of, you know, we were talking off air, and this idea that in a lot of mergers you can't, you know, you don't know precisely what happens as a result of the merger. You can, you know, make some good educated assumptions and inferences based on the data out there. But here we have a, a pretty good sense. So can you walk us through what we know about what's happened um, following this Miller-Coors merger? Yeah, sure. Um, we do know this, uh, thanks in part to some great research about um, the effect of that first domino merger, right? The Miller-Coors merger uh, on beer prices. Um, using supermarket scanning data, which is pretty reliable and um, easy to analyze. So uh, the thing that happened is exactly what you would expect to happen when there's a merger like this one between two of the most dominant companies in an industry. Uh, and that's beer prices went up. Um, that's not just the price of Miller and Coors products, interestingly, but the price of Bud beers went up as well. So that means either one of two things happen. Um, it either means uh, that the efficiencies, the quote unquote efficiencies that um, that Miller and Coors uh, said would come about as a result of the merger never actually took place. Um, and shocking. they just ended up it's shocking. And they just ended up with this additional power to raise prices. So they did it. Or. Even more shocking, uh, potentially, is that the is that the efficiencies actually did come about um, uh, through um, you know uh, better transportation infrastructure between the different breweries or whatever, what have you. And they did actually lower their costs as a company, but they still just raised prices because they could. Yeah. So one of those two things actually took place. Um, and then, and this speaks directly to the, uh, the, the struggles of some independent craft beers. The other thing that happened, and it, it's, it's important to kind of track this, um, is that 
uh, again, the country was left with this true beer, you know, duopoly, where AB InBev, Miller Coors, now Molson Coors, collectively controlled more than 80% of the beer market, with that other 20% fragmented between everyone else. And what that means, um, and what's important for the independent brewer, is that these two big brewers could do what they actually wanted to do, which was to exert near total control over their distributors, who were then at that point almost entirely beholden to either one brewer or the other. And this meant that the brewers gained this kind of stranglehold on which beers could actually reach the bar taps and the store shelves. So Ron, you keep you keep teasing us with a little bit of the the independent brewers and the challenges they're facing. And so, you know, on the next half of this episode, we're going to talk to one of these independent brewers. From the research that you've done, tell us a little bit more. Tell us that story of what's you know what are the challenges that these independent brewers are facing today as a result of all these mergers and the consolidation in the market. And then, if you can, sort of spin it forward, look into your crystal ball. And tell us what the future of the of the beer industry looks like. Yeah. So the challenges um, all stem from the distribution issue. So uh, just a quick background for folks who don't know much about the beer and alcohol industry. In most states, there is a tier system, right? So that you have the brewers, you have distributors, you have retailers. And uh, the three layers there are never meant to really intertwine. That's in most states. It's just kind of state-by-state thing. So in most states, distributors are totally independent companies. But of course, they have to distribute the beer that's out there. And when you have two companies, that is Bud and Miller, Miller Coors, um, who are responsible for nearly 70% of all beer sales, you end up with either mostly, you know, you end up with distributors who are either mostly or entirely reliant on those companies to make their businesses run. And the beer companies know that. So when they, when they push their distributors to, to, um, to shelve certain beer, to make sure that certain beers are on the taps in their local bars, it's at the expense of the independent companies who don't have that same that same power, that same leverage to exert okay. over the distributors, right? So, okay, so what does this look like in practice? I had a conversation with an employee for one of the local uh, AB InBev, one of the local Budweiser distributors, uh, as he was filling the shelves at a supermarket where I was shopping. And, you know, we're just chatting. And I just asked him out of curiosity, what about incentives um, to you know, sell certain beers or to push certain beers um, onto the retail level uh, as opposed to others. And he said, yeah, he said at the end of every year around the holidays, employees at the distributor where he worked got a cash bonus on their paycheck if 90% of the beer they distributed over the past year were Budweiser products. 90%, okay? So the challenge then for the independent brands, for the craft brand is... How do you get to be that other 10% if that's your distributor? Okay. Especially when that other 10% probably includes imports. It includes the major national craft brands like your Sam Adams or your Yingling. Okay. How can you possibly find your way onto the shelves and onto the bar taps if the distributors are actually incentivized to not distribute your beer? That is the problem with this, um, these 
uh, again, these kind of cascading domino effect acquisitions where suddenly you, these, these, you know, the big beer duopolist have what they've always wanted, which is almost total control over the distribution system. And now the portfolio of craft brands to satisfy the taste of most beer drinkers in America. It's a, it's a, it's a system that for an up and coming craft brewery, um, it's almost impossible to navigate and it's almost impossible to grow if that's your, if that is indeed your ambition to grow beyond the super local level of just distributing in your own city or state. And then crystal ball, you see any of this changing? I don't know. Look, I think it's really, this is such an interesting time to do this podcast because just a couple of weeks ago, um, AB InBev announced shockingly, like out of nowhere that they were selling a bunch of their craft brands to this third party called Tilray, which is this Canadian cannabis company. And they own the rights to um, a couple other craft beers, including uh, Sweetwater, which I think is pretty widely distributed and so on. But so Bud said, okay, we're gonna, we're selling them uh, the likes of, you know, Breckenridge, 10 Barrel, Winmer Brothers and Shock Top. Shock Top is one of the really big brands. Um, and they're clearly taking a step back from the craft brew scene. Now, this is, you know, Bud's just trying to roll with the shifting tastes of the American drinking public. And, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, maybe they think the craft is um, on the downswing. If you look at the statistics, it's not. I don't understand the logic there necessarily. Craft um, is uh, uh, is growing even as the overall beer industry mm. retracts a little bit um, from its pre-pandemic heights. Um, but so what happened? So you know, so Bud sells these 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 brands, and there is, I think, maybe um, the potential for things to change for the better for other craft beers because of this. If if Bud has less of an incentive to push its own craft brands into stores and onto bar taps because it simply doesn't own as many. It simply doesn't have the, doesn't have the, the, the big robust portfolio that it once had. Maybe that's a window for other regional um, or local beers to get onto store shelves, to get into taps. Maybe it's, it's, it's a way for distributors to, um, to uh, not have such a, such a stranglehold on their business from from their uh, from their largest client, which is always Budweiser. This is great as always, Ron. Love having you as a guest on the on the pod. So welcome back anytime. But now this is a really fun story to tell. So glad you're able to kick this off for us. Thanks for the time, man. I'm happy to kick it off with beer anytime, man. Thank you, Reggie. <laughs> Thank you, Luke. Appreciate it. What a wealth of knowledge. You can find Ron's extensive research on consolidation in the beer industry linked in our show notes. For the second half of the show, we are hearing from a brewer out in California. But before we jump into that, I'm going to pass it over to my hoptastic co-host, Reggie Rucker, for a quick break. Thanks, Luke. So what I love about the conversation we just had with Ron was, yeah, it was definitely a little bit of policy, history, economics, all of that. I mean, anytime you hear efficiencies, you know you're talking about business and economics. 
But at the foundation of all of this, and what I hope you heard over and over again in that conversation, are the basic principles of freedom and choice. The freedom as an entrepreneur and small business person to create and produce and deliver something of value to their communities. And for members of those communities, these customers, to have a real choice in the products and producers they want to support. Freedom and choice go together in this way. And both are denied when large corporations are allowed to get even larger through this process of merging. And that's what we explore all season long on this season of Building Local Power. So if you're a fan of freedom, a fan of choice, and of course a fan or a student of policy, mergers, business, and community development, bring more people into this conversation by sharing this episode. Invite someone you know into a conversation about how mergers aren't always a sign of some business winning as much as a warning of some communities losing. Take a moment, right now if you'll forget, and share this episode and set up that conversation over a beer if that's your thing. And coming up next, Luke takes you through the story of a burgeoning brewing company and brewer that is the essence of the freedom and choice we need to foster in our communities. Stick around. Mergers and consolidation of the beer industry is not just an academic debate among economists and researchers. It involves and impacts the lives of real people. One of these people is Amanda Wright, a brewer and chief operations officer at Blaker Brewing in Ceres, California, a small city in the Central Valley region. Today, Amanda walks us through her journey of becoming a brewer and a community institution. Here's Amanda. I come from a small town, um, Linden, California, really, really small town. Um, it's kind of by like the Stockton area. So I come from a really small tight knit place. I mean, I went to the school with the same people from pre-K until the end of high school. Um, you know, and, um, my grandmother was like my librarian in high school, well, elementary high school. She kind of just followed me around. Uh, grandma was always around and, and, um, you know, your neighbors know who you are. You don't lock your doors. Um, you know, I remember moving into Stockton. The first thing, that was a shock to me was when I was checking out a college out there, my friend reminded me to go lock my car and I don't do that in my hometown. And I was like, why would you do that? Sure enough, guy got his car broken into, but you know, that's the, the, the tight knit community that I'm from, you know, everybody does good for each other. Everybody looks out for each other. Early in her career, Amanda worked in billing in the oral health world. By 26, she realized that the medical dentistry path was not for her. I think when I decided to stop with the medical dental stuff was I was getting kind of, I was, I was a, um, I was a regional manager. So I was getting up into a lot of numbers, a lot of the one thing that I hate the most, ARAP. So I'm going in and I'm having to talk to families that are having troubles and, and telling them, I'm sorry, but I got to send you to collections. You know, there, there are still aspects that I miss a lot from that working in that industry of having the medical, the 401 benefits in general. So I do miss that part, but I think it was when I started having to, to reach out to families and be the bearer of bad news constantly. Um, that I decided to get out of it. It just wasn't making me fulfilled, fulfilled in any way. Um, and so I went back to bartending, uh, which I happened to know how to do. And so I did that for quite a few years and uh, until I knew what I was going to plan on doing next. And I started getting into tap houses and realizing I really just enjoyed not only the beer and trying new beers, but the conversation it brings. People come together over beer. 
They engage in conversation, they laugh, smile, toast, and create a sense of community. That's what first drew Amanda in. I could easily be sitting at a table and I'm not the most sociable person. I'm not a person to strike up a conversation, but with a beer in their hand and I could be like, hey, what's that? It starts a conversation instantly. Everybody, you know, can can come together over beer. So it's kind of when I started going into tap rooms and my best friend used to work at the company that I currently work for. And she actually hired me on. And and originally I was a, a, a beer tender and then I went into lead beer tending. And then um, the one thing I found was when I find a career or passion, uh, I don't really stop and I will just keep climbing as best as I can. So uh, a couple of years later, I was... Uh, COVID hit, gave me an opportunity. Everybody, unfortunately, had to be laid off, but they needed help back there. So I started doing the grimy, dirty stuff. And one thing led to another, and I'm watching the guys, and I'm like, man, I could do that. I can make that. I would really like to share with somebody, you know? Like, I want to make something that a whole table can have a conversation about. Um, And so it just kind of started slowly, and I realized I loved it. And I realized that there's so many more people like me women, especially there's only 7% of our industry are women. And of that, there's only 2% that are actually like business owners. So what I've realized is my place in this industry is really important to show other people, not only just women, whether older, younger, different colors, different orientations, different backgrounds. If you really, really like to do something, I want to be that person to give you like an opportunity. Let's figure out what you like to do. And so that's when I fell in love with, with brewing was, um, When I found out how versatile it is, you can go anywhere. You can go into marketing. You can go into ownership. You can go into um, uh, sales. There's so many horizontal movements that I realized, okay, well, I know I love brewing, but let's find out everything else. So then I became the COO. And so now I do operations. When Amanda started brewing, it opened up her inner creativity, where she could practice both science and art. I think the component that makes me the most surprised is the, not necessarily craftsmanship, but that creativity. I was never a kid that could play an instrument or sing you a ballad. I can't paint anything. I can't, you know, I can't really write you anything, any super, anything really super great. But um, the one way that I found that I, I connect the best is when I start making beer and, and, you know, and I, and I get to play around with those flavors and use a creativity that I wasn't really used to as a kid. So I think going into brewing, actually, even though I didn't have any foreshadowing in my childhood, it kind of like brought alive that inner child. Blaker Brewing is a farm-to-pint brewery that uses fruit from nearby farms to brew the beer. It's an homage to her community roots and home base that she treasures. Amanda also finds the tight-knit brewing community, especially among women in the industry, is much like the area where she grew up and is one of her favorite parts of the job. It was really important to me that when I found brewing, I realized that that community is just the same tightness. Um, We might brew internationally. We might brew all around the world. I belong to a a society called the Pink Boot Society, which is an all-women's fermentable beverage society where we create support and help build scholarships um, for anybody in the industry. And we're international. But it's still such a small community inside the fermentation that it feels just like home. It feels like Linden, just now we get to make beer. Every brewer has their own style and philosophy. Amanda's is centered on inspiring people's flavor palettes. When it comes to creating 
I don't know if it's on purpose, but what I have noticed is a lot of my creations tend to be on the lighter side. They tend to be styles that are more palatable to the mass. And it's not necessarily for a marketing or sales reason. It's simply because I've met a lot of people that say, I don't like beer. And I'm like, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me have you just taste a few things. Like you might not like hoppy beer. That's okay. There's so many other cool kinds, you know, let's go towards like ESBs. Let's go hit up some, like a, we can hit up some stouts. Do you want a porter? You know, maybe even try something sour, but if you go into sour, that has so many other small lineage, like little areas you can go. So I would say with my philosophy is I try to make sure that it's something that is going to be easy for anybody to at least want to try. I just want to make something that's going to inspire somebody. So when they taste it, it's going to make them think of, man, I want to share it with these people, or they're going to taste it, man, this would taste good with this kind of food, or, you know, this is going to be really good if I go on this adventure. So I want to just kind of pair with everybody's excitement, whatever makes them happy. I want to be there in a can. With women making up just 7% of the brewing industry, it's a must that women stay connected and empowered. Amanda and her fellow brewers in nearby Sacramento, Brittany and Paulina, have woven a network of women brewers to provide mentoring and foster self-empowerment. And I think that now that as I'm growing in my career and I'm learning, sometimes as a woman you have that imposter syndrome, right? And so once that kind of goes away a little bit and you allow yourself to be your awesome self, where you are capable of so many great things, um, you realize that whatever you're going to put out, make sure it's content that you want out. Make sure it's something that you want your name to have. Make sure it makes somebody happy and smile and somebody's going to enjoy it if it's going to be out there. I think I'm, I'm still figuring out where, where my place is and where it can go um, as far as my effects on uh, the community, but people that I really look up to, um, you know, there's a lot of really great women in, in Sacramento. There's a, a woman named Brittany and she works over at OPB or Oak Park Brewing. And she has created a brand where it's all about, it's called Her World. And it's all about helping women, mentoring women to become the best. And that's kind of, um, you know, it's a great model to look after. So I've seen her. I know that Paulina, Paulina, she is out in Sacramento and um, she works for Drake's and she's very, very, um, she's very active in our pink boots. She's very active in helping people. If somebody needs a job, she will go find you a job. If, um, you know, if you need to find a scholarship, she's willing to help you figure out a path to it. So it's, I want to be a person where those people inspire them, me the most is I want to be a person that shows you opportunities or helps you to an opportunity, but mostly I want to lift people up in the community. I just want them to feel like they are invincible. I want them to feel like they can build whatever they want. So I don't know what that looks like yet, um, but I'm well on the path to it. Despite having this strong community network, sometimes massive brewing conglomerates who can dominate distribution networks with pay for performance programs and other forms of leverage make it hard for places like Blaker Brewing to thrive. I do always say brewing is a community, not a competition, right? So we want to help each other and, and teach each other. If I learn something cool, I want to share it with you so that way you can do something cool. Because if you do something cool, I'm going to do something cool back. Um, so, and that's how we grow. But you're seeing these large breweries kind of come in and buy out these smaller ones. And either they keep it going and running or they shut it down. 
Um, and that's, that's part of the beast. That's part of business, right? So I accept it as it is. But I think the one that I feel the most is um, when you're in distribution, uh, trying to stay relevant in everybody's portfolio, trying not to get buried underneath everybody else who are those big, you know, they do those big PFPs or they just have big visibility and people want to push their products. So what I want to do is I want to make sure that our products are as fresh as possible. I want to make sure that they are um, versatile. I want to make sure that they still have a place that, that, Maybe even if it's a new place, which is a hard sell, of course, if you're in marketing, you would know. Um, it's always hard to be like, okay, but trust the style. I know that no one has it yet, but trust it. Um, but trying to do things that hopefully will stand out because it is very, very easy to get buried under it. And it's and it's sad as a smaller brewery to put in so much work and and you know, and you're not seeing it on the shelves and you're not able to share it with everybody. Despite making products that are new and unique larger companies will often find a way to bury them. Getting shelf space as a smaller brewer is nearly impossible. But breweries like Amanda's have to innovate and find ways to survive. And for Amanda, it starts with tapping into the community. I would say for us to stay ahead of the game or relevant with these big companies, um, we've been doing these large events, right? And you get to have your beer there, right? So we make a beer specifically for that. And and everybody does get to enjoy the beer. But what it mostly does is it brings people from all, all around. So the only way that I have found that, yes, Blaker will be on a shelf and people will see it and they know that we're a brewery, but the only way for people to really experience it is getting them into the tap room. And I think that's what we need to do moving forward is either more tap rooms, just try to space out, or make sure that we're big enough and we are well prepared enough to have more people come in. Because I think that when people set foot onto a place, even though we're small, when people set foot onto a place or into a tap room and you can genuinely tell that there is a passion, people will want to drive that further than I possibly could. Before we let Amanda go, we had to find out her recommended read. I think when I first went into brewing, um, you know, I had zero experience except for maybe a handful of homebrews. So I was really nervous. And like I was talking about that imposter syndrome, I really wasn't sure if I could do it. And I didn't want to stop myself from myself. That would be so sad, especially when you find something that you're so passionate. Um, not a lot of people do find a passion and get to stick with it other than maybe a hobby outside. So the fact that I get to do it on a daily basis, I wanted to make sure not to screw it up. Um, and so there was a book called You Are a Badass by Jen uh, Sincero. And um, sorry, Jen, for screwing up the name. But um, that book, while reading it, it just constantly made sure that I was checking myself, my negative talk. How did I, how did I make myself feel good? What did I point out that I did positive today? Um, and that book made me realize that that negative talk is just the only thing weak about me. And I, I think that not only as, as women, just, just as humans, uh, we have a lot of doubt all the time. And, and um, sometimes you'll find something that was completely unexpected. I had no idea I was going to go into brewing. And it was the best choice that I ever could do to make that negative self-talk stop and say, go get your ass to work and show yourself that you can do it. 
Thank you so much, Amanda, for telling your story on the show today. If you're in the Central Valley, please stop by Blaker Brewing and grab a cold one. And one last thing before you go, if you like this podcast, please share it with even just one person you think will enjoy it too. Let's get these listens up and have everybody talking about how mergers are affecting their communities. And if you're not a subscriber to the podcast yet, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you know when every new episode drops. And of course, your donations are essential to help us keep this podcast going and support the research and resources that we make available on our website for free. We truly welcome and appreciate it all. And one last thing, promise, send us an email. Send an email to buildinglocalpower at ilsr.org and tell us about your favorite brewery in your community. We'd love to share these on a special mailbag episode one day. We'll keep an eye out. This show is produced by Luke Gannon and me, Reggie Rucker. This podcast is edited by Luke Gannon and Andrew Frank. The music for the season is also composed by Andrew Frank. Thank you so much for listening to this brand new season of Building Local Power.